Since 1971, Beauty O Books has specialized in ornithology and natural history. They're a small, family-owned and operated mail-order bookstore with the largest selection of new, used, and rare birding and ornithology books in the world and a knowledgeable staff ready to help. Find field guides, travel guides, ornithology, natural history, humor, even children's books to inspire the next generation's love of nature. Visit beautyobooks.com to find everything you're looking for, and ABA members receive 10% off. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm your host, Nate Swick. I have some good news to share with you that perhaps you, podcast listener, helped bring about. About a year ago, you may or may not remember, I talked a little bit about a situation in Salineño, Texas, where the U.S. Department of Homeland Security was trying to buy up a small nature preserve on the banks of the Rio Grande, run by an organization called the Valley Land Fund. If you're an old-time South Texas birder, you might remember way back that it used to be an RV park and that the last residents of that park, Gail and Pat DeWind, had a nice little feeder set up. It was uh, notably the last reliable spot north of the river for brown jays, a bird that has not been seen in the AVA area since then, honestly. After the DeWinds retired from a life of bird feeding, the land was donated to the Valley Land Fund, who developed it with some signs and some trails. It was a nice little birding spot right on the river. Anyway, the Department of Homeland Security wanted this little piece of property to build the border wall. It was this little tiny gap between property that they had already procured. And the Valley Land Fund originally agreed to sell. And then after outcry from birders and local conservationists decided not to sell. And then Homeland Security came back and said, well, we're going to seize it anyway and get it condemned. And then it went to the courts for several months. And of course, all this was sort of happening against the backdrop of the U.S. presidential election and the switch from an administration that was actively pushing the border wall to one that was not doing so. So it was never really clear how it would all play out, how seriously the feds with new direction, new priorities would, would be pushing for the condemnation to build the wall. That's construction was more or less halted in early 2021. Because even if they never actually built the physical wall, the worry was that there was a chance that they would get the property and that the small tract would then be bulldozed, you know, raised clear anyway, and in, in quote unquote, preparation for the wall. You know, we got our answer to all of this last month. In late September, the courts dismissed the government's condemnation lawsuit seems no one really had the desire to keep pushing for it. Uh, the title for the small property has reverted back to the Valley Land Fund, and the Salonino Tract is preparing once again to open for birders. So that is that is some really good news. I want to thank all the birders out there who sent comments during the public comment period when we put out the call to do so. You did make a difference. Sometimes it's hard to know whether birders can have a real impact on conservation and on environmental policy, but this time I think it's very clear to say that we absolutely did. You know, had birders not spoken out, this property would probably be a dusty stretch of nothing. And yes, it is a small piece of land, probably not hugely influential from a conservation perspective, but birding access matters. Birders having a place to practice our hobby matters. Public recreation matters. And honestly, these little victories are great for our collective psyche. It's good to know that you can make a difference, even if it is a small one. 
Valleyland Fund put out a call. They're doing some invasive plant removal there to get it ready. If you're in the area and you want to help, do check out their Facebook page. On the show this week, let's talk about pigeons. Artist and author Rosemary Mosco thinks they are an amazing entrance point into birding and her new book, A Pocket Guide to Pigeon Watching, makes the case. She joins me to talk about her favorite columbids. It is a delight after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of October 2021. Quebec again takes the spotlight. We talked last week about the potential ABA area first lessons seed eater, and now just down the St. Lawrence River at Tadasac, Quebec comes up big again with a likely small build, Alania, another long-distance austral migrant, this time a little flycatcher, captured in a mist net. I don't know if that sheds any light on the potential legitimacy of the seed eater, but the Alania is a Quebec and Canada first, and actually the second small build Alania in the ABA area this year after one this past spring in Texas. So while it is not currently on the ABA checklist, there are at least three now, the Texas bird, the Quebec bird, and a 2012 individual in Chicago, Illinois, that are good candidates. October continues its impressive stretch of first record, so let's get to it. Down in South Carolina, a bar-tailed godwit on Kiowa Island in Charleston County is a long-awaited state first there. We mentioned Saskatchewan's Phanopepla last week, but the province did not stop there. A crested caracara at Paradise Hill is a provincial first and almost certainly the same bird that has been tooling around eastern Alberta for the last couple weeks. And to Florida, where the absolutely bonkers record of a gray-tailed tattler, an East Asian shorebird, was found in the Florida Keys, that is Monroe County. This is only the third gray-tailed tattler on the eastern seaboard. Those other two come from Massachusetts and Maine, and both on islands off the coast, interestingly, so three for three there. It's also the fourth record for the lower 48. There was a California record as well from the 80s. Gray-tailed tattler is a regular migrant in the Bering Sea and the Aleutians off of western Alaska, and this is about as far as you can get from there and still be in the ABA area. Those were the most excellent highlights in the Rare Bird world this week. It has been a great month. If you want the entire roundup, check out the Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org rba. Or to get those rarities as soon as they happen, join the ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook. Rock dove, feral pigeon, rat with wings. Perhaps more than any bird in North America, rock pigeons suffer for their omnipresence and familiarity. But there is more to the humble and ubiquitous species than meets the eye. They are, in fact, a great opportunity to learn not just about the wonders of birds, but about the interconnectedness of humans and nature. And that is the case. Made by our friend, artist, and writer Rosemary Mosco, creator of Bird and Moon Comics in her new book, A Pocket Guide to Pigeon Watching. Getting to Know the World's Most Misunderstood Bird, which just came out. She joins me today to talk about it. Welcome, Rosemary. It is wonderful to talk to you again. Hi, Nate. It's great to be here and, and get to chat about pigeons. Yeah. So, you know, I'll start with the obvious question. Why are pigeons so misunderstood? Yeah. Well, you know, when you go out, you know, go outside in the city and you see these birds pecking on the ground and, you know, eating um, trash, essentially, <laughs> you might think, you know, oh, those birds are quite disgusting. But what's really fascinating about pigeons is that all of the pigeons 
all over the world that we see in, in our cities, especially are descendants of domesticated animals, just like the cat or the dog. So they're really these animals that have this long history with us. And then we've sort of relegated them to these, <laughs> these trash birds and we've forgotten. So I think that's what's yeah. so interesting is there's a hidden history there. Yeah. You know, you know I, I know that you are a, a nature enthusiast with a really with really broad interests. Um, why focus on pigeons? Why, why an entire book about pigeons? That is such a good question. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I grew up in cities. Um, mm-hmm. I grew up in, in all sorts of different cities. And I'm the child of, you know, a dad who grew up in the tenements of New York City. And so I feel like um, my, my whole life experience has been pretty urban. And yeah. so when you're an urban bird watcher, you can't help but start to notice these, these birds that are all around you. And once you start to realize why they're here and observe their amazing colors and patterns and behaviors, you just, you just get really hooked. So I think it was sort of natural for me to start to observe them. Yeah. They do a lot of really interesting things too. I think a lot of people's experiences with pigeons are, you know, you're sitting in an outdoor cafe and uh, you drop a a few crumbs and um, all of a sudden you've got this this carpet of moving gray feathers at your feet (laughs) fighting over it. Uh, But there's a lot going on, you know, within those. Those are their little pigeon hierarchies. There are, you know, pigeon relationships. There's all the different colors. It really does feel like there are a lot of directions you can go just by focusing on on pigeons. And then you can learn a lot about just birds in general, which is, is really cool. Yeah, birds and human society. Yeah, I mean, because they've true. been domesticated for, we don't know quite how long because we're bumping up against the dawn of, you know, recorded writing. So 5,000 yeah. years plus, there are, you know, centuries, millennia of gossip and drama and, you know, human <laughs> history intertwined, which I think is really, really fun. I mean, they're like right up there with chickens in terms of birds that humans have interacted with over the scope of human history. Do you know how long it's been when pigeons were domesticated? Like, I, I, it, it's got to be thousands of years. As you said, like at least 5,000 people are talking about them. But, you know, when, when did people start domesticating pigeons and, and why? That a very good question. Because if you look at a dog or a horse or a cow, it's immediately obvious yeah, to most of us why they were domesticated. Us, yeah. But you look at a pigeon, you know, pooping on a car and you think, what usefulness is that? So what happened was um, roughly around the dawn of um, agriculture, probably in an area of the Middle East known as the Fertile Crescent, people sort of started to make permanent settlements and farm grain. And the wild ancestors of our domestic rock doves started to hang around and eat that grain and nest on the flat surfaces provided by these buildings. So we don't know exactly when the moment happened. It probably happened lots of different times. There wasn't one glorious moment of of (laughs) connection. Yeah, where a person reached out their hand and the pigeon (laughs) reached out its beak and they connected. A flash of light and strings. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like a a moment from the movie The Black Stallion or something. Yeah, no, no, it it was a slow sort of process. But uh, when people started to realize that pigeons were useful, I mean, they realized, I like to think of these birds as sort of the Swiss army knife of birds because they are so useful. They can be eaten. 
Um, and people in North America actually used to eat quite a bit of pigeon before the chicken sort of supplanted it because it's easier to raise. And we use their poop for fertilizer, especially in, you know, parts of the Middle East where the soil was a little drier and a little mm -hmm. nutrient poorer. You could, you know, raise your your vegetables and fruits um, in, in pigeon poop. And that poop is also used as an ingredient in gunpowder and for leatherworking. Oh, and then and then we started to use them to carry messages. If you affix a note to a pigeon's leg and release it, it'll fly home speedily and carry a message. And that's really just the tip of the iceberg. There are so many different uses for pigeons. They're really remarkable. I think it's also sort of interesting how many famous biologists have been amazed by pigeons. I guess pigeon fanciers is the term, which is perfect because it sort of evokes both uh, fancy pigeons, of which there are a lot, and uh, people who appreciate pigeons. Um, when working on this book, did you sort of see yourself as the latest in a long line of uh, naturalists slash pigeon enthusiasts? Yeah, it's a long and very weird line. <laughs> um, there are royals in there too. Um, you know, uh, Emperor Akbar the Great was a huge pigeon fancier and he used to um, intimidate business, you know, potential business mates by um, releasing pigeons en masse and, and showing them this very intimidating display before, you know, doing any sort of business. And it's sort of ironic given that pigeon releases are uh, like uh, symbols of weddings now, where they're not yeah, supposed to yeah. be intimidating, they're supposed to be peaceful and lovely. <laughs> no, no, yeah, it's, it's, it's so fascinating. I suggest anyone try this at their next meeting, you know, and intimidate, you know, ambassadors or, or, you know, business prospects. And so, you know, all sorts of royals from the past because pigeons were really were considered high class hmm. um, birds. And then more recently, Charles Darwin was a big pigeon enthusiast. And people forget because they think about finches when they think about Darwin. Mm -hmm. But he did a lot of experiments with pigeons and he was obsessed with them. He wrote to a friend that there is nothing better for a friendship than sh one member showing the other person their pigeons. Oh, so true, uh, even today. Just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think I think I'm um I think I'm sort of part of that line. Another famous fancier was Tesla. Oh really? Who who yeah, so so Tesla um was a lifelong bachelor with one exception which is that he fell in love with a pigeon and loved her as a man <laughs> loves a woman and so he rescued this white <laughs> pigeon and he he cared for her in his hotel room and when she died he felt all sense of purpose leave him so yeah. it's wow. quite a strange and illustrious what an story interesting dude yeah <laughs> um has your appreciation for pigeons changed over the course of working on this on this book, pigeons I could see going from a from a space where pigeons are you know, sort of interesting. They're sort of a you know an entry point into you know a larger interest in birding in nature. And now it's like, wow, you know, pigeons are are pretty amazing. You know, Darwin, Tesla, uh, Moscow. Obviously, these are uh, <laughs> pigeons have the power to captivate. <laughs> that is that is an illustrious combination of people <laughs> to be in. <laughs> <laughs> for for all sorts of reasons. Yeah, yeah. I I you know, I was a little worried when you start a book like this, you think, yeah. Oh no, what if I get bored, you know, a little ways <laughs> yeah. in. But I, you know, like Darwin and Tesla, I just kept falling in love um the more I learned about them. So I've always been interested in urban nature and I sort of saw them as an element of urban nature, which they definitely are. 
but their history and not only that, but their anatomy and their behavior mm-hmm. and um, and especially their color patterns are fascinating. So because they're essentially feral, you know, animals, descendants of strays, like stray dogs or stray cats, they come in all the colors that a purebred, you know, yeah. ancestor would would come in. So they're so delightful to to look at and just yeah, I I got more and more interested as time went on. We'll see if I hit some sort of wall, but so far not. <laughs> there's, there's a limit to pigeon interest at some point, yeah. but you haven't found it yet, yeah. Nope. Um, it, it seems like the pigeons are almost like a, like a platonic ideal of a bird, like the most bird bird, if that's a, <laughs> if you understand what I'm saying. Um, it, and I, I feel like this sort of works for and against pigeons. Like people don't think much about them, but you can learn a lot about birds generally by focusing specifically on pigeons. And you do you do a fair bit of that in the book. You know, you talk about uh, bird anatomy, as you said, and bird reproduction and all sorts of kind of general bird things. Do you think that pigeons are, are such a useful way to kind of get people interested in birds kind of more generally? Because a lot of the amazing things about birds and physiologically, like birds are like bonkers. Um, Pigeons, pigeons are great examples of it just because they're so ubiquitous and so familiar and you can just say, hey, this is what all birds do. Yeah, you've uncovered my secret plot, which <laughs> is to get people more interested in birds in general. Yeah, I was going to ask about that last chapter pigeons. too, but I'll save that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a chapter at the end of the book that's all about how to sort of branch out, pun fully intended, into mm-hmm, the rest mm-hmm. of the world of bird watching using using pigeons. But they really are... Um, so, so, so anatomically interesting, um, just birds are in general. And I think Mm -hmm. if you look at a pigeon and you, you know, particularly imagine this boring, familiar bird, you know, having a four chambered heart that it independently evolved, um, you know, just like, just like humans with our four chambered hearts, you know, birds sort of hit upon this evolutionarily too. They also feed milk to their young, which is again, sort of another thing that they stumbled across, um, evolutionarily. And it has a lot of similarities with human breast milk, including being stimulated by, you know, some of the same hormones and, and yet they have, you know, three eyelids per eye. Um, they blink a a sort of third trans translucent eyelid. It's it, they're just there's so much more going on with them than you would imagine, you know, when watching them from afar. Yeah. What, in your opinion, is the most interesting thing that pigeons do? And feel free to, uh, you know, not just come up with one thing. I it, I, I realize that's sort of a leading question. Like they do, they do so many cool things. But um, what 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 did you learn in the course of this book that you found to be just really uh, remarkable? I mean, let's circle back to that milk because that is probably (laughs) just the weirdest thing. So both male and female pigeons produce milk and they produce it in a region of sort of their throat digestive system esophagus called the crop, which is an area Mm -hmm. that humans don't have. And so this milk is sort of secreted out of their crop and then they kind of barf it into their babies mouths and it's it's you know it's a little chunkier than maybe mammalian (laughs) milk but it's got fats and proteins and it helps you know boost the immune system and it's um you know like i said stimulated by prolactin which is you know something that Mm -hmm. um people who you know humans who lactate will notice (laughs) will recognize the name (laughs) of this hormone so it's it's truly 
uh, it's truly bizarre that they have also stumbled across this. And it's one of the reasons why it's hard to raise pigeons all mass in captivity hmm. because the babies need milk for the first few days. So it's, it's this odd example of how pigeons are both really alien and really, really familiar to us. Yeah. It is so strange to me that um, this this sort of alien creature is living among us, nesting uh, underneath highway overpasses and in uh, coops at the top of tenements <laughs> in big cities and uh, you name it, like all sorts of weird places. Um, it gets to the whole idea of birds as this sort of amazing thing that live among us that we can, that are doing things, even the most familiar and ubiquitous birds like rock pigeons are doing just uh, incredible things that it will amaze you if you take a closer look at it. And any opportunity to do that is uh, is much appreciated. You're an artist as well as a writer. Um, was it fun to draw all the different types of pigeons? Because like, there's a lot of different directions you can go, not just all the different variants of the colors, but also you know you talk a lot about the pigeon family as a whole and all the kind of cool examples there are among the pigeons. Yeah, it was challenging to do them justice because <laughs> there's so, especially so much iridescence and I have yeah, a pretty flat yeah. cartoony style. So that was challenging. <laughs> so one bird that was particularly hard was the Nicobar pigeon, which I think oh, is yeah. probably the most beautiful member of the pigeon and dove family. Columbidae. It's up there for sure. Yeah. yeah, it's this bird. It's just dripping with with iridescent rainbow plumage. And then it has this sort of stormy blue-gray head with what looks like this cascading mane of hair. Yeah, they look sort of like the uh, the predator monster from the Predator movies. Yeah, it's, <laughs> they... like, it's like a glam predator. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> Except totally. that what it feeds on is the poop of other dove species. I did not that know that. That is can't digest wild. seeds. So <laughs> it'll swallow those hard to digest seeds amongst the poop. So it's yeah, where's where's the Nicobar Pigeon movie? That's what I want to know. Arnold Schwarzenegger, we're looking uh for you. Please redo exactly. Predator with uh with with Nicobar Pigeon. <laughs> <laughs> the the pigeon family is um is so unique too because there are so many kind of cool uh, extinct members of the family, unfortunately, but things like dodo and solitaire and passenger pigeon. I mean, there's so many evocative members of this family uh, that are no longer with us. It seems like a great opportunity to talk about that as well. Yeah, uh, the dodo is fascinating because mm -hmm. it's been more recently recategorized as being a member of the pigeon and dove family, and you can you can definitely see it when you look at yeah. a dodo. It's got that sort of chunky beak, but the passenger pigeon, I think is it definitely rivals it in fame. And I think it has something really interesting to tell, particularly people from North America, which is where the passenger pigeon was from, because in a way, colonization um, destroyed the passenger pigeon, which was a really important food source for mm -hmm. indigenous people. And then uh, co colonists installed their own pigeon. So they replaced it with yeah. Columba Livia, the rock pigeon or, or rock dove. Um, and I think that's just such a wild you know, thing to consider is that colonization extended to replacing one one uh, pigeon that was considered right. very useful with another pigeon that was considered very useful. And now we no longer consider the second one as useful. Uh, right. um, and, I, and I think that history is really important to consider. It is really wild to think of, you know, rock pigeon more or less is a fairly, as an invasive species, as a feral species, it doesn't really harm any native species. It kind of has its own little niche that is thinking like house sparrows, which might use nest cavities that bluebirds or 
tree swallows use, but rock pigeons just kind of do their own thing. And it, it almost makes you wonder whether if it kind of fits in to some extent, not exactly, I'm not a one-to-one replacement, but it does sort of fit into the niche of passenger pigeon a little bit. And therefore it's not, you know, causing this, this harm. I don't know if that's, if, if I, that is an idea that has any legs or anything, but it is sort of interesting to, to sort of think about. Yeah, I'm not sure that it would replace the the wild um, yeah. niche of the passenger pigeon because they really did. They were migratory and they really kind right. of lived on their own. But maybe sort of a similar nutritional right. um, niche for for humans for sure. And that that was something. The um, the fact that pigeons aren't really invasive was something that really surprised me because so many of the birds that were brought over, you know, starlings and house sparrows and such, can be seriously invasive. And it's not that pigeons aren't ever a problem. For example, they were exterminated in the Galapagos because they were considered Mm -hmm. to potentially bring pathogens to the Galapagos dove, which is this beautiful um, endemic species. And they certainly, you know, poop all over our our cars and and (laughs) so forth. But because over thousands of years, they were bred to live next to us yeah, and to, to want to be near us. They pretty much don't wander off into the into the forest and do their own thing. They really like to hang around close to us and live on the, the beautiful cliffs that we provided for them in the city <laughs> yeah, and, right. and eat the grain that we, you know, toss on the ground in the form of hot dog buns and, <laughs> and so forth. So, yeah, they really want to hang around us. They just yeah. like us so much. Yeah. I will talk about that final extra chapter. The, if the, the hope, if that, that's any indication, is that you want this interest in pigeons to translate into a broader interest in birds. Do you see pigeons as sort of uniquely suited uh, for that job of being the bridge? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, no matter how interested you are in pigeons, if you're a bird watcher in anywhere urban or anywhere even agricultural where there are pigeons, you can discover, you know, all sorts of fascinating raptors by watching pigeon behavior. So mm-hmm. pigeons will burst into the sky en masse and zoom around really fast when there's an aerial predator, which is their main, you know, type of predator. So I've seen Cooper's hawks, red-tailed hawks, peregrine falcons, all sorts yeah. of amazing stuff. If you're in Germany, there are urban um, goshawks that you can see. Yeah. Just just all sorts of amazing birds all around the world that you can observe thanks to pigeons. And then I'm also hoping that people will sort of start to notice, you know, pigeons have cool colors and patterns. Well, what about the colors and patterns of my other local birds? And there then, you, you know, slowly we'll get our hooks in them. And <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and everyone will us. become bird watchers. Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah, exactly. Yeah, talking about raptors, I, I swear, like rock pigeons, when I'm out birding, they're like chimeras. Like they turn into whatever you sort of want to see, which was one of the things that I've always found amazing about rock pigeons. Like I have mistook them for probably more birds than any other single species. Like they can yeah, look like falcons. And, and they can look like gulls. They can look like, yeah, morning doves <laughs> as well. Yeah, that's a pigeon thing, a dove thing. Right, who knows? That, there's a lot going on there. Rosemary Mosco is a cartoonist, a writer, a science communicator. Her new book is A Pocket Guide to Pigeon Watching, Getting to Know the World's Most Misunderstood Bird. But do check out Birding is My Favorite Video Game as well if you want the whole Mosco oeuvre. Uh, congrats on the book, and uh, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Nate. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. Support this podcast and all of our free resources for birders by supporting the ABA with your membership. The magazines are worth it on their own, but you also get discounts to our partners and just a good feeling knowing that you're helping us build a better birding community here in the ABA area and around the world. Get information at aba.org slash join. 
I have some shout outs to make this month to Gene Berger and family of Mesa, Arizona, Heather Morris of Marble Canyon, Arizona, Christopher Daniels of Snowmass Village, Colorado, and Samuel Gauntz of Perryville, Maryland, all of whom recently joined the ABA and noted the podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you so much for that. We really appreciate that support. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon, who is pretty sure that stool pigeon refers to a rock dove that spends all its time pooping on statues. Technical production is from John Lowry, who makes a very convincing case that pigeon toad should in fact refer to some sort of dirigible propelled by 5,000 pigeons with tiny harnesses. Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese, who enjoy being pigeonholed because to them, that is just a delightful cavity filled with fluffy cooing friends. You can find us on ABA.org, on Facebook and Twitter as American Birding Association or ABA. You know, because Columbus Day is increasingly out of fashion, I am in favor of replacing it with Columbus Day, wherein we all celebrate our favorite pigeons and doves. A true day of mourning. Thanks for that one, Tim Graves. Questions, comments can come to podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy, everybody. Till next week.